welcome to I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are covering both a director's spotlight and a listener's choice request. You asked for audition and we're giving you that but also giving you Ichi the Killer, both directed by the prolific filmmaker Takashi Miike. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. So, Jess... Why did we choose these two films? Besides Audition being a listener's request, so we had to cover that one. Why then did we pair that with Ichi the Killer? Well, I remember when like you and I were sitting down and discussing our like plan making our plan for this episode, and we're like, okay, we someone's requested us to talk about audition, but typically it was like we'd like to like pair these films with another film. And it what ended up leading us back to doing a director spotlight. So we're like, well, we've also always wanted to talk about the films of Takashi Miike. But the thing is with Takashi Miike is he has over a hundred films and they're all very different in various ways, but some of them are very similar. And when we were talking originally about Ichi the Killer and Audition, we were kind of looking at more of the extreme violence aspect of it when we first initially started having that conversation. But then I know when you started watching it and did some of the research, you're like, wait a second, there's this like really interesting parallel that is happening, this idea of like doppelgangers and twinning. And I remember when I watched the films as well, I was like, yeah, I'm seeing this as well. So it's like, there's these interesting commentaries on society. Also, like, it's it was very hard to combine two <laughs> Takashi BK films because he's such a diverse filmmaker, but we're also a horror podcast. So, mm-hmm. and he has made less horror movies than he has action movies, thrillers, that type yeah. of thing. So, dramas, yeah. yeah. So, Audition, of course, is a classic in his filmography, and that was our listener request. And then Ichi the Killer, I feel like, felt like it was probably, yeah, just kind of the best, closest to horror than a lot of his other ones. Also, we had both already seen it, and yeah. fuck, Ichi the Killer is fun. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's why we chose these two films and why it ended up becoming the month of Takashi oh, Miike. And, we both went very different directions with yeah. it. Both I went more the horror route because I wanted to watch more of the horror films, and Kelly went more the action mm-hmm. and thriller route. Yes. And so, yeah, we've got some thoughts and some things we want to say about Takashi Miike. He is a king. He is a master. He is an outlaw. So Takashi Miike had a 30-plus year career with over 100 films, like you said, Jess. And what is so interesting about him and what, again, made it so difficult to pair movies, especially if we were trying to stick with horror, again, being a horror podcast. Um, But his films have so much genre blending in them. So you could have a horror movie, but also throw in like absurdist comedy, hyperviolence. And you can might even do that in the same same movie, the same scene or the same portions of the movie. It's (laughs) wild. There's excessive gore, excessive violence, exaggerated characters, images, scenes, right? So he is incredible. And he started in what was called V-Cinema, which is like direct-to-video, low-budget indie films. And he made a fuck ton of those movies early, early on, which I would love to see. I know they vary in quality and they're hard to find, 
Um, mm-hmm. But I would love to see where he started out because I am now just like a massive fan and super fascinated by him. So a little history on Takashi Miike because we all know that I like mm-hmm. history. Takashi Miike was born in the 1960s and grew up in the working class of the Kawichi district in Osaka. Osaka was really well known for a lot of the multicul- uh, multiculturalism clashing in this area in Japanese society. And so he was really influenced by this, especially too when they originally wanted to be an uh, actual rock star before becoming a filmmaker, which you can see in their, their cinema and the way the music plays and stuff like that. Like finding that out about Takashi Miike was really interesting. But was really a quiet child growing up, read a lot of anime. Hello. We all know what anime does for you when you're growing up. Watched a lot of Bruce Lee films. And then when they're 18 years old, they went into university and film school as a way to escape life's responsibilities. This is really important because when you read interviews with Takashi Miike later, Takashi Miike is all about fun and just enjoying, like, filming whatever they want to film and just having fun with their their cinema and the things that they're putting out there. So I think it's interesting to be like, oh, I went into film school because I didn't want to be responsible for life anymore. I just wanted yeah. to have fun. You don't want those adult responsibilities. Dude, I hear ya. A little thing that, because I, I, I read some interviews and watched some interviews uh, with him, but Takashi Miike feels that films are meant for entertainment, so he wants to make them entertaining. And seeing that, and I know how experimental he is as well, he wants things, yes, they might be horrific or super violent or wacky or something, but you will not, yeah. I can guarantee you, you will not leave a Takashi Miike film not entertained and feeling like you're disappointed or that you've been cheated in any way because it's incredible. Yeah, and like Takashi Miike has been influenced by a lot of prolific uh, filmmakers in Japan. Like they were really lucky to be able to get um, an unpaid production assistant position at a local TV station that literally changed his life. And for 10 years got to work um, throughout all kinds of different jobs in the TV and film industry, which is not known. Like a lot of directors don't get that opportunity to be able to work in video, film, television and do whatever they want and have all these diverse opportunities and understand the industry and what works at so Takashi Mika has such exceptional versatility, which has made them one of the most prestigious of directors in Japan. But we also have to remember, too, that with this this versatility that Takashi Mika has, there are some particular themes that we do see often in a lot in their films, often a lot of like gangsters and historical films. There's also rock movies. But Takashi Mika, and for us horror fans, we know Takashi Miki for the films of bad taste or films that are featuring excessive cinematic rage, which would often offend Western sensibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People would often dismiss Takashi Miki as just uh, creating gore and violence for fanboys and that often the serious tones of these films are missed because we don't understand the cultural context in which these films were created. And Kelly has talked earlier about V Cinema. That was what Takashi Miki grew up in working with. And also a lot of the early influences such as anime and manga, Takashi Miki was really impacted by uh, 60s and 70s manga that was actually very graphic and very violent. So they you know, grew up around a time where this things that would offend us in uh, Westerners would necessarily wouldn't in Japan. So like Kelly said, often these films around like Yakuza, violence, absurd comedy, we see a lot of identity, we see a lot of people of minorities who are considered weaker and people who are forced to make careers for themselves and often it has like a criminal element to it. Most importantly too, social alienation, being forced to make changes through violence when you're searching for family, happiness, nostalgia, when you don't feel like you have a like a center or root 
um, a route in life. You're just kind of wandering. And so I feel like Takashi Miki's films hit on all these abilities, when, but you don't see them unless you look past the gore and the violence, which is often uh, Westerners have a hard time getting past. The early 90s saw a turning point for Takashi Miike, the Takashi Miki that we now know and love, who's infamous in the film world, horror world. His first theatrical film, The Third Gangster, from 1995, again, was Yakuza, which is a premise that he touches on in a lot of his movies. It was a commercial success, but then infamy, and he became much more well-known uh, with his Black Society trilogy uh, Shinjuku Triad Size Society, Rainy Dog, and Ley Lines, particularly Shinjuku Triad Society, that really showed his penchant for extreme excesses, violence, and versatility, especially, again, with that first one. Uh, in our research, you know, you can see uh, Takashi Mika being called, like, his style, maniacal direction, which absolutely, mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. became a prominent voice in exploitation Japanese cinema. Like, his... His movies are now, at that point in time, mid-90s, really made waves. Dead or Alive trilogy that came out as well, very subversive, very entertaining, very different, sometimes very wholesome. Um, But the movie to really gain him international acclaim was Audition, 1999. From a film like Audition, we also see that this is part of Mikashi Miike's, what they people consider his style as part of the cinema of the outrage. So films that are symbolizing the rapidly changing world that is facing the Japanese population and the worst aspects of globalization and postmodernism is having against former values that are, you know, that were being put into questions. His films are very nihilistic. Audition is nihilistic. E.G. the Killer is nihilistic. But these nihilistic aspects of cultural change and how these dangerous implications in these films have for change worlds and challenging people not to fall back to your ideological denial. A lot of these films, like Audition and A Teacher to Killer, we'll talk about, focus on the darker aspects of Japanese society, especially after the post-war boom, boom, when you have oppressed minority groups who are involved in various forms of sexuality and violence being used on them and towards others as a means of form of control. So a lot of his films have a tendency to show a lot of diverse nationalities. His, uh, his movies can be really intense, right? And we go from, yeah, like Audition, Ichi the Killer, Gozu, which Jess and I watched together. That was yeah. her first time watching. You can see his David Lynch influences there. Um, yeah, wild, yeah. wild movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, this month has been really, really great. And like I said, I've become a massive, massive fan of Takashi Miike. Like I was a fan prior to this month, but I watched... Mm-hmm. In total, nine Takashi Miike movies this month. So I paid my dues. I've paid my (laughs) dues. But I watched, particularly, the majority here of the movies that I watched were, I did watch the entire Black Society trilogy and the Dead or Alive trilogy. And holy moly. Yes, I personally am taking a break from horror. I didn't check out his other horror releases like Over My Dead Body and One Missed Call. I have not seen those ones um, because I am on my horror break. And I also really love action movies and like martial arts movies. And I just, I I mean, if I also really enjoy violence, um, but I really, really like, I really like watching a lot of violence. And I mean, I go to these, I go to his movies because I do enjoy that as well. Um, And again, I was not at all disappointed. Um, I also uh, signed up for an Arrow subscription, so I was able to watch all of these movies through that. But also they had interviews with Takashi Miike and two reoccurring actors that he uses in all the Dead Alive movies, and, and they're in some of the Black Society trilogy movies, but Riki Takushi and Sho 
Aikawa. Um, they're in, they're the leads in all of the Dead or Alive. And oh, okay, um, cool. Jess and I talked about this like off, uh, off, offline, um, off the record. <laughs> but what I really noticed throughout this month is how absolutely unpretentious Takashi Miike is. And watching these mm-hmm. interviews or reading interviews with, with these people, just how, again, unpretentious Japanese, Korean, Asian filmmakers are as a general whole. Like, you don't see that as much in North American cinema. You see a lot of pretension. You see a lot of mm-hmm. privilege. You see a lot of that. Again, especially in our male filmmakers, directors, screenwriters, and stuff like that. So... It's very refreshing to visit Asian cinema for this reason, for sure, because I really appreciate that. Like these movies, again, can be absolutely wild. And the way that they talk, these actors or Takashi Miike will talk about their really absurd, but like violent, excessive movies with such endearance. Like they find them so charming and they just like love being a part of this. And I'm like, this movie was wild. Like you watch Dead or Alive, it's got some style, you know, <laughs> but the actors and everybody just loves it. And I just, I just find that so charming to me and endearing for myself to, to see this because these movies are wild. And I just really, really respect these actors, the actresses and Takashi Miike for being just so deeply unpretentious. I agree with you. I watched a bunch of films as well, and I wanted to make sure I cut, got all the horror ones. So, like, I had seen One Miss Call a while ago, and I watched Over Your Dead Body, which is really good, and people should check that out. And then Kelly and I watched Gozu. And then a while ago, I watched Happiness of the Katakuris, mm-hmm. which is actually his uh, musical slash horror <laughs> slash comedy, and it's really out yeah. there. It's really great. Yeah. Um, and then I watched Yakuza Apocalypse, which was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I realized the other night that I would prefer to watch a Takashi Miike action film over our Western action film mm-hmm. uh, just because, like, I find them really inter- enter- not only just entertaining, but also, like, heartfelt and, like you said, not pretentious. Like, I really liked watching Dead or Alive, the first one, and then watching the second one, which is a very different mm-hmm. type of film, but I enjoyed because it, it was so full of heart, yeah. and I really enjoyed the journey that I went on, and I, I look forward to watching more of their more serious films, and also, like, they've done a lot of historical films as well, mm-hmm. so I want to go check those ones out, too. They're historical dramas, so... Takashi Miike has something for everyone. Yeah, like we are literally just scratching the surface mm-hmm. of what this director has brought out to the world. And I really think people encourage people to go and seek out more of Takashi Miike's uh, films. Me too. Because uh, they're not all what you think. Mm, they're they think literally they are. not one or the same. So, yeah, exactly. so enjoy. <laughs> Should we move on into talking about our first film, Audition? Yeah, let's do that.
Uh, so what's your story around this? I think this was a Let's Scare Jessica to Death challenge. You are correct. It was a Let's Scare Jessica to Death challenge when I first watched it. Yes. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yourself? I think I watched it for the first time like a good while ago. I know it is, okay. I feel like, a horror classic, a horror essential watch, um, in, in, again, in my opinion. So a good number of years ago, but I hadn't revisited in a long time. So I was thrilled to uh, to cover it and to revisit this as a listener request and for us to do our spinsters of horror take on it because I remembered the movie differently than and I was prepared to go into audition in a very certain way with a very specific perspective, which I came out with a very different perspective and thoughts and feelings about the movie. So, you know, there's, uh, it's an interesting movie. And so I'm excited to, to talk about it, but I went into it with a certain mindset, which I normally don't do, but things from my whole opinion and perspective changed after I watched it. So what are some of the likes that you come uh, away from this film? So I like Audition. I do not love Audition, but I do like it. I do enjoy its story. I like its acting. I mean, Asami is a horror icon through and through. The finale, her outfit in the finale, again, iconic. Some of the cinematography is really excellent. Those initial shots of her just sitting alone with that bag in the corner of the room in this empty, desolate apartment with just a phone sitting there, essentially, is very kind of disturbing and fantastic. Takashi Miike, there's lots of details in his movies, and sometimes it's easy to miss. So a lot of Mm. movies, and particularly for these two, I feel like they take at least two plus watches to really get a full grasp of what these stories are trying to tell you. Because sometimes it moves quickly. I think that might also be like, I'm trying to watch subtitles and then watch the movie. And sometimes it's easy to miss little details. But Asami always wears white all throughout the movie. We'll talk about that later, but always wears white. But that first date that she goes on with uh, Aoyama, she throws on this beautiful, fantastic red poofy jacket and it looks so good. It was just like very striking and it really stood out to me. So there are very specific like costume design choices that they make in this movie. And so it's it's an interesting movie. I do like it. How about you? I I do like this film. Um, I would say I love it as I would I love it as one of the best of the Takashi Miike films that I really enjoy. It's one film that, yeah, when I watched it for Let's Scare Jessica Death, I've actually watched it two or three more times since. Um, because, like you said, it is one of those films that requires, like, re-watches because not only are you just trying to catch the dialogue, because the dialogue, yeah. like, every point of dialogue in a Takashi Miike film is just so bloody important. That's something I've really realized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just, like, in watching more of his films, I was just like, oh, man, I just missed a bunch of yeah. dialogue. I need to go back to just Agreed. figure out what's going to happen in the next point with the dialogue. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, because, like, when someone watches this film, because it's you're dealing with two different narratives as you watch the cinematography of this film, if you don't pay attention to the dialogue, you're like, oh, wait. I missed something that's really important. So I really like that. It's taken me a couple watches. And like you said, pointing out these like small details of like 
her wearing the red jacket and you're like oh red flag already like we've got this warning but like (laughs) literally like you know these small little minor things that really are important to kind of keep it on so I really like that like you're not just listening to the dialogue you're listening you're watching the atmosphere of the film but you're also watching out of the set pieces and the costuming because Mm -hmm. it's so bloody important for these films and it's the same with each of the Mm -hmm. killer you just can't this film I feel for me always grabs my attention Mm. because I just need to watch to figure it out because there is that point and which is one of my dislikes mm. the change in narrative and like when you think you've got it figured mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. It, you don't mm-hmm. and you kind of come to the end of the movie you're like wait a second <laughs> so who is really you're like what you're you're yeah. it, what exactly but at the end of the film you're like also towing which i think this is a great thing and i will talk about this too is that you at by the end of the film you're like who's really the villain like because mm-hmm. you're like i don't you, mm-hmm. you're trying you're you're because you get these two different narratives and like well whose truth is the real truth and that's something that i both like and dislike mm-hmm. because it requires me to watch this film a lot to really figure that out yeah i'll echo that as a dislike i mean i'm it's common knowledge i'm not much for non-linear stories i'm a simple person i got a simple mind i need simple things sometimes it works um, so it's the blending of, yeah, their flashbacks, dreams, hallucinations. I'm just like, yes, what is truly yeah. going on here? So it gets a little murky, for lack of a better word. Um, pacing, the length of the film. This is another, like, two-hour-long movie. Some of his movies are too long for me as much as I, and that'll be a jump forward in the future, each of the killer. Also too long for me. I think if we edit some stuff down a little bit, it would just be, it would pack more of a punch for me, but maybe Mainly just like non-linear storyline length. Some of the pacing is just a little off. So it's it it's kind of hard for me. To, it's it's hard for it to keep my attention. I'm gonna mm-hmm. non-linear if non-linear story slow moving. Sometimes that doesn't work for me. Um, I need fast paced stuff happening, action packed. <laughs> No, and, and I agree with you too. Like I'm typically the more the person that enjoys yes. kind of that back and forth yes. and the non-linearness yeah, because sure. I can eventually b- build it together in my yeah. mind. But for me, it's like the hallucinations that start coming in. I was like, wait, why is it? Why are we hallucinating? Is he dreaming now? Yeah. And that's where I get I get a little, a little lost. Yeah. And try, trying to understand, be like, oh, it, it does he really know that she's a serial killer? I don't think he ever know, knew that. Mm-hmm. But maybe he was, maybe it was his own instinct. But you're you're left with a lot of interpretation at the end of the, by the time you finish the yeah. film. Yeah, and again, that's going to work for a lot of people. Look at all these conversations. Like, there's so much written about Audition. And I think the part of me, when I went back into this, was a bit influenced by a lot of opinions that are out there. Yeah. Which normally, again, I'm not, but it had been such a long time. And so we'll talk about it now. Um, But getting into Audition, Audition plays with a lot of different themes. Gender politics, identity, masculinity, again, misogyny. Is this a revenge fantasy? Maybe. I really liked a couple of like Takashi Miike's thoughts on Audition. So his thoughts were, it's about a man who betrays a woman and the woman who betrays him, which I thought was interesting. And then his other thought was that the... Japanese people would be the only ones to understand the man's feelings. That's a really interesting point because knowing that this movie itself is based off the novel by Ryo Murakami, who this book is about using social commentary to skewer the concerns that were facing modern Japan at the time. So in the early 2000s, this was a time when power dynamics between men and women mm-hmm. in, in Japanese society were shifting. Women were being encouraged to go out and get jobs and get careers and this was very untraditional yes. and a lot of traditional men in Japan were not happy with this and we see this in 
in the film and how uh, they speak to and how Ayama and his friends speak about a bunch of women yes. having drinks at the bar and calling them like dirty dogs and stuff like that because like women were coming out and it was like this they call this book this really ingenuous twist on national femininity by subverting the passive female horror narrative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Asami is not passive, and she is a really interesting character as you get into this, especially when you know the context of Japan Japan Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and how things were shifting for them. So I think that's really interesting that Takashi Miike has that, because, yeah, this film hits upon, like, male Japanese anxieties Mm -hmm. about women going out and working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, we had that in the 90s, right, with our, like, with, you know, women in the 80s and 90s going out working and men's anxiety and fear. Well, of course, things were happening a little slower in Japan, so this was bigger in the 2000s. Yes. So another person's thought was that Asami was a symbol of abuse of the women in the film industry. Like that happens now, today, all yep. over the world, unfortunately. Still going on, yep. <laughs> but they are talking about how the objectification of women was and still continues to be massive aspects of pop culture. So making Asami's visual perfection or our or Aomi's perceived per her perfection actually as a dig at patriarchal concerns of society, right? So me going into this movie, I was ready to be like, look at this empowering feminist revenge fantasy because a lot of folks feel that way. And that is fine. But I was I was kind of geared to be like cheering for Asami. Yeah. Because I would be the first in line <laughs> to watch a revenge fantasy with torturing men. Absolutely. However, is this movie as empowering as a lot of people make it out to be? But let's look at our main characters, Aoyama and Asami. And so how, folks, you're listening... We're going to talk about these two main characters, and then when we talk about Ichi the killer, we're going to talk about those those two main characters, uh, Ichi the killer and Kakiara, because there's parallels between both main characters in both of these movies, which makes the analysis and like watching this movie really, really quite interesting. He's a single widowed man in Japan with a teenage son. His wife died seven years ago, and though he has had some sexual encounters with women, he has not really dated much, and he's now considering getting remarried. His son is also really encouraging him that it's finally time to remarry, because that's what you do in Japan as well. You don't just have tons, well, I guess you could have tons of casual sex, but like you get married, like you'll quote, settle down, you have a wife, like that's, they take care of you and they help support you. You need a woman around to protect and care for, right? Asami, she's kind of murky. She's kind of murky, right? Because so much of her is experienced through some flashbacks, hallucinations, literal lies from her mouth that she tells Aoyama, right? I feel like the, the only thing that perhaps could be truthful is yes, she was burned. Was it from her stepfather, aka the ballet teacher, question mark? Maybe, maybe not. I feel like as a starting point, that is true. Okay, okay, okay. You're right, Jess. When you said that, when it comes down to come to the end, you're like, who is the actual villain here? It makes you really think, who is the actual villain? These are not dehumanized 
monsters like other villains that we see in horror movies. It's not that straightforward. It's not that black and white. They're not really, quote, guilty in quotations, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're both sympathetic characters, right? In the beginning, for sure, they're seen as, and even at the end, again, you could see it as sympathetic characters. No, definitely, 100%. Like, because, like, when Asami goes to this audition, so we have to go back. So, yeah, like you are saying, too, Aoyama, he is presented as a sympathetic character who is not an outright male chauvinist. And he's a rep- he's representative of the state of heterosexual relationships within Japan. Like you said, get remarried. You don't want to be lonely. Yes. You don't want to be like you want your wife to take care of you and after years and stuff like that. Yeah. But he participates with his friend in this idea of an audition to audition women to not only for to work in like the film industry or something like to work on this film we don't we never really know if that's like a real truth that his friend never said like yeah we're actually gonna hire one of these ladies to be an actress it was a no we're we're gonna like we're doing essentially speed dating but with an audition we're presenting we're presenting these women to you under the false pretenses Mm -hmm. of getting a job yes right and so we see like Asami as she's seen as demonized as a cautionary tale for men who are seeking women to be careful out there. You never know what you're going to get. And always, like, listen to, like, the, you know, the, like, the subtext to their words. But Asami went to that audition looking for a job. Mm-hmm. She didn't expect, you know, like, yeah. she like if she's, like, a serial killer and she's going out there and she is uh, bringing justice to, for women against men who think they can use them, then she wouldn't be there. Like, but she just, she ended up at this audition. She, you know, and then all of a sudden this guy, this director is calling her after hours to be like, hey, we really liked it. Want to go for a date? And she even like calls him out later being like, you did something you knew you weren't supposed to do. Mm. What did you expect? Right? Like you came, you sought me out, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not realizing that I have a very dark, dark past (laughs) and have some trauma. You know what I mean? Like, and that's why, like, I find those conversations between, uh, Asami and I am a really interesting because you're like yeah. was she always because like I remember when it's funny how you're like oh I don't think she, I think she's lied the whole time and I'm like well what happens if she was truthful the whole time and he wasn't listening to her mm-hmm. he was just hearing what he wanted to mm-hmm. hear or just ignoring her because she's always dressed in white she looks so virginal she looks so great and because he doesn't want to feel guilty for what he's doing mm-hmm trying to create a relationship based on false pretenses. Mm -hmm. The guilt is really interesting because, you know, when you read about this movie and you're going through and there's like, Ayama will have three, he has multiple dreams about his wife. Ayama is touching on a lot of different aspects of masculinity and identity, male desire, male anxieties, male guilt, male fears. And he is um, like, well, both of these characters, all of us are and can be influenced and pressured by social norms, right? So yes, Aoyama goes out with his his friend to the bar and he brings up this idea of the auditions. He's like, okay, what an interesting way. And also side note, aren't these auditions and first dates uh, essential? Oh, sorry, like first dates like the auditions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially, All these questions, yeah. it's like really strange to he me. He literally just had like so many first yeah, dates. exactly. <laughs> it's just like he just went on like 100 first dates to get that out of the way. But everybody kind of has, and again, we're all privy to this, but learned attitudes towards like men, women. But in this movie, like even the son has these learned attitudes towards women. There's a casualness, a sense of superiority and about girl things in quotations. Like you mentioned the bar, like it's again, you could easily miss this, but it's really important to kind of set up the atmosphere and this social 
attitudes that these people are living in. So they meet them up at the bar and a bunch of girls start giggling. They get kind of loud. Women shouldn't be loud. But Yoshikawa, which is uh, Aoyama's friend, he says that girls are all stupid and full of themselves. And he wonders where all the nice ones are. Yeah. Okay. And that is yes. what Aoyama is looking for. He's looking for this nice yes, girl. Absolutely. This is what he's searching for. Like, even when Aoyama has his son, his son brings over that young girl and, yeah. like, you know, they have their dinner and stuff yeah. like that. And she's like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I ate your meal. Let me cook dinner for you. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to go for a walk. But, like, as he's leaving, he's like mouthing to his friend. He's like, yeah. she's good. She's a good yeah, girl. And sorry. you're like, they're, they're, <laughs> he's gave on me the thumbs up. So if you've seen the movie, <laughs> Yeah, like, it's like, you know, they're always searching for the right, the good girl, the the one that is virginal, that is pure, that is, uh, will be faithful, like, his, his wife was faithful to him, and, but yet, at the same time, too, like you said, they don't, they treat women very much like a monogamous man is treating a lot of these women as sex objects, because we see throughout this film that he holds a lot of guilt yeah. for what he's doing. He's deceiving a woman into these dates. He's, you know, he, he hides his pictures from, his, like, his wife's picture. He turns it around, stuff like that. There's also the interesting relationship between his secretary and his housemaid. Like, you can tell that they, that at some point or another, he's had sex with them, yeah. and they've essentially feel used by mm-hmm. him, but they're also very timid by him as well, and that's really interesting like he comes off as like this really sweet nice guy but is he yes ayama is looking for perfection and there's even a note a, a, a quote of dialogue again you'd miss it but in it where he thinks that confident people don't rely on others so does that mean you need an insecure woman right because so because if you're confident you don't need other people i can relate it's uh you know you so he wants a timid insecure woman because they require protection and yes he had sex with his secretary once we see that as a flashback and again maybe that's real maybe it's not and but you do see that she does have a thing for him like she keeps coming to him it's the staying in the office a little bit longer than you need to be. You know, there's there's something there. Aoma's not interested, you know? Maybe it's because she lacks that vulnerability he's looking for, that sense of needing to be looked after. Men have these, like, quote, protective instincts, right? Because if you, if you have a wife and you have this, like, very sweet, um, subordinate, submissive woman you're a man. And so that's kind of where I go when I when I look at this, right? And we talked about the white. And again, I didn't cue this cue into that until after the movie. And I was like, wait a minute, she's always in white. That is for a very specific, distinct reason to show how, because she wants, talking about Asami, she wants to put on, she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows what to say, when to say it, how to say it, how to present herself to lure also, Aoami in. The white is going to do it because that is, you know a lot about colors, Jess, but it's like shows the the purity and innocence that she is projecting and she's projecting it hard. And Aoama falls for that hard. Oh yeah, because he is someone who needs to be needed. He... And this is what Asami presents herself off as deeply vulnerable and as someone who needs protection. All the white. Yeah. She talks about her past, her trauma. And from what we learn from Asami of her trauma is child abuse. We, we end up learning that, you know, she talks about how growing up as a child, she was abused by her stepfather horrifically, yeah. um, both sexually as well as physically. And all the things that were done to her for your children. She was into ballet. So, of course, she's into the arts. And that's, you know, ballet and piano. It's very cultured. It's 
very refined. So you're a woman who's into beautiful things. And But it's also, I feel like while Ayama was getting so caught up in this imagery, this beautiful imagery of Asami of being this like beautiful woman, he was not hearing that she had actually had this really traumatic past and that she is was taught that love and pain are not inseparable, that they are one. And this is actually like, talking a little bit of context in Japan, like this is actually a problem in Japan is that as much as a Japan is a beautiful place to go visit, it's not really a safe place for women or girls in Japan. About 70% of younger women experience being groped in public um, by a Japanese man. Or, and there's also the huge problem of grooming. A lot of older men inviting young girls back to their home, terrible things to them. So like there's also like, in this film it also touches upon this attitude of indifference mm-hmm. towards the violence that is inflicted against women and uh, young girls, especially people who are known to them. Wives being beaten by husband, parents neglecting and abusing their children. Asami was a child of uh, parental abuse. Female co-workers being raped by male co-workers. Mm-hmm. You know, like these things are happening all the time. And so we see how this trauma could really impact someone like Asami. And for young women who can't talk about this, you can see why she all of a sudden has this. She wants to inflict pain upon others when she loves them. She and she realizes that she loves Aoyami. And he says that he... Well, no. Did he ever say he loved her? No. She said to him did. that she wants Thank him you, yes. to love her and her only. Mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. she's laying deeply vulnerable, absolute butt naked on the bed. She's like, love me and only me. And I remember like a conversation that they had had at one point where he was like, he was talking about the job and he's like, you know, it may not work out. So don't get your hopes up. And I remember thinking, is he also saying that this relationship may not work out? Like, right. is this like a double entendre that he's saying like, oh you know, you may not get the job and I'm really sorry. So like that, it may not happen, but also like if things don't work out well between us, things may not happen. Because there are parts in the film where he seems very distant from Mm -hmm. her. Like even in the beginning of their dating, I'm just like, is this NRE? Is this new relationship energy? Because it it feels very off. A lot is off. A lot is very off, right? And I love that you brought that up because yeah, you're right. Thinking back, watching the movie, nothing is quote normal here. Also, AOM, um, there's a lot of red flags that he ignores. And that's also part of like new relationship energy too, right? That's easy during that time because you've got, you're going goo goo gaga for someone. It's easy to miss subtle red flags. And she has a lot of them. Just sits mm-hmm. around waiting by the phone for him to call. I have no friends. I have no family. I have no one to confide in. Like a lot of those, and yes, she may, starts talking about her traumatic life. There's a lot of red flags there. The trauma talking is not a red flag, but maybe mm. he's dismissing that. We don't see a lot of them interacting together. There are some scenes, but there's not a lot, right? And when it comes to that later on, we don't even know what's really, really happening here and who it's such a, it's an unreliable narrator. That's what happens. But She seems so soft and vulnerable and perfect, you know, so it's easy to dismiss those these red flags. But she lies. There are some clear cut lies here that eventually he does find out. And then that's kind of like the spiral of paranoia. Maybe there's aspects Mm. of like maybe this is like deep seated guilt and paranoia because, yeah, she lies. Mr. Shibata, the record producer that she said is helping her out. Nope, went missing 18 months ago. The bar where she claims to work at, that owner was killed and dismembered a year ago. Lies upon lies upon lies. Then they have sex, and then she ghosts him. Maybe? (laughs) Well, that's what I mean. Like, someone says that she disappears, and he goes looking for her. But then I'm like, but did something happen? Yeah. 
Like, did he say something to her and she got upset and then left? We don't like, see that. And that's what you said. Yeah. We don't see this. this there's, like, this pivotal moment where, and that's what you say, that unreliable narrator yeah. is like, okay, because then from that point on, we see a different side of the story we see like their first date them having these lovely conversations and i feel like like that's him seeing the date and being like oh everything's so great look she's so wonderful da, da, da. and then you see the other half of the film where she actually gets into her trauma yes. and talks yeah. about horrible and he seems so uninterested right. and i was like okay so was the first half him seeing what he really wanted to see but in reality was the se- is the second half and he was like trying to get away from her himself yeah. like it's so so complicated. And then, like, I remember thinking, too, about his friend being suspicious of her oh, right from the yes. get-go. Yep. Like, he was, like, so on on board yep. for him to be like, you need to pick the yep. girl, the right girl. You'll find her great. And then the moment was like, that's her. That's her. She's perfect. She's the one. He's like, mm, no, I don't trust it. There's no such thing as the perfect woman. I'm going to dig deeper and find out that she is not who's not she is. So we've yeah. already been set up to be suspicious of her from the get-go, which is interesting with this film, is that we are set up to be suspicious of these people from the yes. get-go. We're suspicious of Ayama's abusing his power and promising stardom and a potential career to someone through these auditions but really he's seeking another wife right we're suspicious of Asami because she has not been honest from the get-go yes. about her life yes. right so like by the end of this film you're sitting here thinking like people are complicated <laughs> and who is really the victim and who is the perpetrator of these actions like this yeah <laughs> that's when we get yeah close to the we're at the end and the you know we're getting to this the iconic ending the iconic finale but holy moly narrative instability reality blending with chaos what is real? What's not? And I just like, I still don't really know exactly. But I mean, I have a lot of like back and forth feelings on this. So to start. So what really is his crime? Casual sex? Yes, he set up the audition. I get that. Shit could have been a lot worse. So is that his crime? Does he deserve to be tortured and killed? Some people might say yes. I would say no. I would say you're kind of a dick. That's fine. Um, And you move on and you ghost them. That at first, when I was watching, that's what I thought happened. Somehow, we don't see Mm. this happening, but she found out, because yes, he should have said something. Absolutely. Yeah. But she found out, because uh, later on in the maybe it's happening, maybe it's not um, torture scene, she says that, you know, you met, what you do, you meet up with, you meet up with actresses and you have sex with them and then you reject them. And I was like, but he wasn't rejecting you. He actually was falling in love with you. He was going to propose to you that weekend. And then you left and you ghosted, maybe, question mark. Or she didn't, right? He wakes up in bed later on in this like delusion or flashback or dream or layers upon a guilt and guilt and guilt, whatever, that he wakes up and she is actually still in bed. So this whole weekend did happen. And she's like, I'm the luckiest girl out of all the auditions. I'm so happy. I'm so lucky. She's the heroine of of her own life now and not a heroine of a film. Um, Okay, that's a nice ending. But then we go back to the torture scene. I was like, which one is real? But really, what are his crimes? Men have done a hell of a lot worse and gotten nothing, just saying. But really, is that is that his crimes? Really, yeah. Well, like, I think when people look at this film, they say, like, the crime Aoyama committed was objectification of women. That he, he took uh, women and reduced them down to the list of qualities instead of appreciating their human value and just using them. Because, like men do that in the film industry system like when sure. when Asami says like you just offer jobs have sex with women and just throw them, maybe that's what the record producer did there are shitty men out there yep, who would do absolutely. that like, oh, 
you look great. I want to fuck you. Because we did have a point where, like, the director, when they're doing all those um, auditions, yeah. and the one woman was like, I've done porn. And the other guy's like, hold on to that one. Put that somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, for we need sure, to obviously. remember that. <laughs> like, his friend yes. is, like, the classic, like, douchebag. Yes, like, you know what Absolutely. you're doing. Womanizer. Ayama, yeah, he's he's in a gray area. Yeah. Because he is both victim and perpetrator. Because yes. he's also being, he's following the pact. He's following his yeah. his his friend is saying like this is what this is normal don't worry like it's, it's like a dating app it's yeah. nothing because he didn't want to like, go cool. ahead with the audition he was like really like mm, maybe this is not the right plan of action but his friends is like yeah like you said like no it's fine we'll make it seem like this it's great what a brilliant idea i am a genius now you're a dick yeah his his crime was you know following the continued misogynistic lens towards women by doing this audition but was it worth getting his leg cut off no, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> he just ended up falling in love with a woman who t- tells us that has had a very traumatic past yeah. and she's very complicated. She is a very complicated villain from the get go because yeah. she was a victim. She was a victim, victim of abuse yes. and trauma and she wishes enacting revenge against another passive victim. She just wants retributions for those who wronged her and anyone who wrongs her is going to get punished. Right. And in a way, Ayama at some point wronged her by not being honest with her, by loving other people. Because she also said too, like, I didn't realize that you had a son and that you loved your son, that we can't have this. Like, oh. it's me and only me. Ooh, I even missed yeah. that. Talking about the son. Yeah, Jesus. she was, Yeah, she talked about, like, killing the Ugh. son because she's like, we can't, you can, right. your, your love is clearly divided because you right. have a son. Love me and so, only like, me. She wanted someone. Mm. Exactly, mm. exactly. So, <laughs> Asami is deeply unhinged. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Both could be seen as sympathetic, Both could be seen as, quote, villains. That's what's so interesting about it. Like you said just earlier, the complexity of human beings, of the human mind and our human emotions. So my kind of last thought blurb whatever was Aoyama... Perhaps he was falling in love with the idea of her perfection, which maybe she came maybe she came across a lot with men. Like she did that all the time. She knows, like I said, I think she really knows what she's doing. She knows how to play them. Men want this ideal woman. They want this type of woman to fit into this box of perfection to be the perfect wife. She had potentially and likely... Again, who knows how much of what she has said about her life and past is real. Experienced a lot of pain and trauma. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. This happened. That then makes her imperfect, right? The way her reactions manifest is through torture and death and mayhem and murder. So she became a serial killer. She's very meticulous. She's calculated. She is very smart. She's brilliant. And she's very sadistic because she enjoys her work. And so when I went into this movie, I, again, like I said at the beginning, I came into it assuming it was going to be a straightforward, like, revenge feminist fantasy. I don't think it's like that at all. I don't, I don't perceive this movie. So I was kind of, not that I was disappointed, but I, again, I don't normally cloud my perspective going into a movie. I keep it very clear and I go in and then make my, make my opinions. But at the end, and I was like, no, Asami is just a straight up killer. And 
I'm into that, but it just was not what I was expecting. I didn't, I think it was more, I wasn't expecting myself to feel that way, but I do. And it doesn't make me see this movie any less. It doesn't make me see her any less. I just think it makes a really great discussion, but she is just a sadistic, unhinged serial killer. And for that, I do applaud. Completely agree with you. I know that people look at her as someone who is striking out against a system of systematic sexism. And I think, like you said, when you get that last line, you addition all these women to have sex with them. People could read that right away. But like I said, she was just going in for an audition. She never expected this guy to ask her to date her. Like, you know, like that's a lot of planning. And I know a lot of serial killers aren't going to plan that far Mm -hmm. in advance. Maybe they will, but she isn't. Because here's the other thing. She's not in it for the money. She's not in it for the house or anything Mm -hmm. like that. We've seen where she lives. Mm -hmm. We've seen how her life is. We don't see her like planning, like getting herself in, getting married, getting all the money to her and then killing Ayama. She's just like, like you said, she's straight up unhinged. She will like, you've wronged her. She will kill you. And then she will move on because this is how she's dealing with how she's been damaged by men. And she's like, I've been tortured by men. So I will torture men. Done. Mm-hmm. Easy peasy. <laughs> and you know what? I'll take all readings of this movie because in the end, I'm I'm only dead dead fast in my opinion that she's just a sadistic serial killer and that's it. I have not that much sympathy because I don't I don't have that much sympathy because I don't trust her. <laughs> so that's fun and it's just different and I'm into that. Um, but yeah, I just don't see it as this super feminist revenge fantasy that I think a lot of other people do. And that's just my opinion. And I agree with you. I think when people have said, like, you know, this is a, a feminist film, I was like, uh, no, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree. And that's audition. So I want to get into some Ichi the yes, Killer. please. What is your story with Ichi the Killer? Oh, Ichi the Killer I saw so long ago, probably like 10 years ago for the first time. I watched that with an old partner of mine because Ichi the Killer being violent and gory was one thing that he really would want to watch. So I've seen this movie, well, a couple of times, but it's been a long time since I revisited it. Yeah, and I was really happy to because, again, Takashi Miike fan, give me more. How about you? So I have an interesting story with uh, Ichi the Killer. (laughs) So, and... 
one of the reasons why I stayed away from all Takashi Miike <laughs> films because I was under the impression, based on what I saw from each of the killer, that this was all of Takashi Miike's films and I'd be scarred for life. So back in my early, early heydays, um, when I was not watching horror films, I had an ex-boyfriend who was really big into horror films and really liked the more, like, round, like, liked gory stuff, liked, you know, the Rob Zombie horror and stuff like that. And they had rented, they had gotten a hold of each of the killer from someone and was watching it. And I just happened to come out of my office and to go to the, to go to the washroom or something like that. And just happened to stumble upon the scene of torturing one of the Yakuza bosses, like that really, tempo- the scene with the tempora and being hung oh, from the yeah. ceilings. And so baby Jessica at the <laughs> time was like, oh my God, like literally walk in, walk back in. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, and then I remember them. I remember him showing me that, like the image, like yeah. the image later of that scene of like Kakiharo's face with like yeah. the the cuttings and the lips yeah. and stuff like that. And I was just like, oh my god, this is a Takashi Miike film. I will never watch this. This is someone who was like, like I love Japanese anime and I love Japanese yeah. cinema, but I was like, I'm not touching Japanese horror because of these violent and grotesque <laughs> imagery. imagery. No yeah. way. So I stayed away from this film for a very long time until Kelly put it for a let's oh. scare Jessica to death. And I was yes. like, well, I've already watched Audition. So, I, you know, let's do this. Let's do it. And then I watched Easy to Killer. And I really liked it. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Yeah. I remember saying how much it reminded me of of an anime and stuff like that, which is based off a manga series. Yeah, it's it's so funny how far you've come. Also, the right? fact that we're covering two movies that I thought were intense enough to challenge you to watch them. And now we're just like casually covering them for the podcast. Folks, times are changing. I Spit in Your Podcast is evolving. We will be touching more on, you know, some more subversive, challenging films. So this is, it's, we've come to a turning point, I think. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So what are your likes and dislikes of each oh my of the goodness. killers? What I like about it, so many things. Again, I don't love each of the killer. I would love it if it was shorter. Um, so that's my only dislike <laughs> is that it's too long. This movie does not need to be two hours long. I think if you cut it down to like 15 minutes, I'd be like, mm, perfect. Um, but a lot of things I like about this, the hyper violence. Now that I've watched a lot of the action movies that Takashi Miike has done. There's this very like 90s indie film aesthetic, this like grungy, small budget look. Like I love the look of Ichi the Killer. It was filmed on actual film, 35 millimeter film, but a lot of his like mid 90s action movies, like a lot of the ones that I watch, there's a very specific aesthetic to them. This like exploitation Mm. kind of vibe to them, 90s vibe that I am in love with. So I love the aesthetic of this. I love the story. Kakiara, I love so much. He again is also another horror icon. And I hadn't rewatched Ichi the Killer in a number of years. And I was just like, oh, he's not Ichi the Killer. You're branding for the movie is very deceiving because it's like Ichi the Killer with Kakiara's face on it. So I always forget that he's not Ichi the Killer. Uh, <laughs> it's movie is very explicit. It's bloody. It's gory. Man, those blood spurts from the neck are so good. It's disturbing, but has a sense of humor. It's cheeky, which I really enjoy. Uh, it's super grim. Um, it does have that like late 90s, early 2000s cheesy CGI that I don't love, but it's a product of its time. So I'll find that endearing. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. Like, I like that this is like, like when I remember when I first watched it and said this reminds me of an anime and a manga and to find out later it 
was based off yeah. this. I'm like, okay, bonus. I love that. Um, I do agree with you. It is too long. It's one of those things I'm just like, I could cut down some time. This is one of those films that I would go back and watch again yeah. and again if it didn't have such a yes. long time, like a long Me run too. time. I love the complexity of the characters. Like, once again, you have to really listen to the dialogue and pay attention yeah. because if you miss yeah. something, you're not going to understand what's happening in the next scene. But I love how there's this like, complexity of the characters and stuff like that. And something that I've also really come to really appreciate about um, Takashi Miki films is what he does with the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm super interested in learning more and watching more of these films of what he uh, does around the Yakuza because, like, it's like, this complex, you know, system of both, like, loyalty and honor, but also extreme violence and stuff like that. And so this is, like, one of those first films that I actually started me in more of the extreme, violent, grotesque and absurd imagery of Takashi mm-hmm. Miki. And that's what I like. So one of the things I really like about Takashi Miki films is the absurdity. Mm-hmm. Bring it on, because I, I love it and I just think it's great the places it goes um I can do without all the semen everywhere and knowing that it's real semen makes <laughs> that it opening even, scene power like, the details real semen whose is it I don't know right who is this I don't know but it's we, real. we've all read the story about like a bucket of semen was on there and you know that Takashi Miki had asked for that so I'm like I'm always like squeamish around bodily fluids that, like around bodily fluids yes mm-hmm. thank you um one thing that comes up that I'm not a huge fan of but I also know it gets brought up in a couple of Takashi Miki's films is the violence towards mm-hmm. women it can be a little much it's a lot of like ultra violence mm-hmm. and I know that this film is actually there is an uncut version of this film out there where there's scenes where there's actually more violence Ooh, towards women okay, okay. Um, yeah and that's why like this film has been banned in several mm-hmm, countries and mm-hmm. a lot of things had to be cut out of it so there's an ultra there's a cut that there that's more ultra violent but I've been also told too that in Takashi Miike's film it's actually tame in comparison to the manga yeah like it's even more extreme violence so like but I also know that when I've read about this film is also Takashi Miike is giving a commentary on violence mm-hmm. so I I try not to get too hung up mm-hmm. on that because I'm like this is a this is a reality mm-hmm. like it is true like like I discussed earlier like violence towards women is mm-hmm. a problem mm-hmm. in Japan and that's what Takashi Miike is showing in their films is it's not just towards women it's also towards men but like it is a problem yeah absolutely um, and I do like the character of Karen who tries to bring that around Karen. um herself like yeah. you know like and I and that's another thing too one of the things I appreciate is in these films is that there are actually some really interesting women yeah. in the Kashimiki films and, and Karen w- is one of them in this film as well yeah so, for sure yeah like those are like my both my likes and dislikes I love the cinematography mm-hmm. and like I said I also love that grainy like fast moving you know m- like almost music video rock star mm-hmm. imagery which is like okay now yeah. that I know that that's what Nakashimiki wanted to be was a rock star this yeah. all makes Each sense Each of the killer very falls into that like it could, it could even be a yeah. music video like just the way exactly. how it's shot and some of the outfits and stuff like that absolutely oh my god yeah. Kakihara's oh. outfits I love oh my god. them everything Kakihara yeah. wears I'm like yeah. that is I love yes. this <laughs> yes talking about the movies so there's so many themes again in this one I also have read that it is some kind of commentary on violence I didn't really get that from the movie that would be an interesting take to and rabbit hole to go down but like bullying violence assault again masculinity identity voyeurism uh torture violence it is a very challenging movie and you know what's interesting is both of these movies I was even watching an interview today um a very sweet cute old white Englishman talking about Takashi Miike's film career. 
and talking about audition and Ichi the killer. He's like, audition is rough. Like barely anybody can watch this. This is my like trigger warning, content warning for you. And I'm just like trying to be very sweet, very sweet, very like objective about it. But like I also kind of went into each of the killers thinking it was going to be more brutal than it is trying to be objective about it because I have seen so many more films since I watched Ichi the Killer for the first time and it's been a number of years, but it's it could be worse. So I'm interested to see this like ultra violent cut because um, I would I would love to see that. And that's what you said. Like earlier you said like there when there are those ultra violent scenes where the guy gets split down the middle and it looks very yeah. CGI and very like unrealistic yeah. as a fantasy. It's like that was something that the censors like the censors took out all the violent scenes that were ugly and mm. dark because they look too realistic to everyday violence that happens in the world, but they left in the more fun, glitzy, yeah. actiony violence, which is more unrealistic and is more fantasy. So that is really interesting. And that's a commentary there too. We yeah. see this in like action films all together. Like we, when we watch the Dead or Alive films, like there's some really gory scenes and some the violence yeah. in those films are like, but because it's like an action film, it's, it's okay. But each of the killer is it's acceptable, but each of the killers is promoted as a horror mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. and you don't want to see the ugly and dark side of horror. So we mm. need to cut some of that back and cut some of yeah. that out. But, but don't show us the realities of the world where there is vi- lots of violence against women, and that kind of in the research too about Ichi the killer for sure came up a lot. I saw is that it's misogynistic, and like sometimes Takashi Miike is called a misogynist. I'm like, dude, this is just the reality of the world. Don't think the mis- I don't think Takashi Miike is misogynist at all. Again, we talk about this time and time again on the podcast, but it's like he's just showing you the realities of the world. This actually happened. It is brutal. It's awful. It's unflinching, and that's just the the nature of it. And I I love that he doesn't hold back on that because I mean, as awful as it is to watch, we need to see it exactly. And so based so each of the killer it was like. It debated in 2001 at TIFF, and this was like the height of Takashi Miike's more violent, grotesque, and absurd films. Like this is like, in comparison to what he did before, this was like the height of it, and we'll get some, we'll get more after. But it was based off of the manga by Hideo Yamanoto, who published the original serial of Ichi the Killer in a manga magazine called Weekly Young Sunday in 2001. This now, there's now a 10 volume anthology that people can Ooh. read, and it in this manga it contains many scenes of male sexual excitement and more bondage and violence, which. Mm reveals a lot of genitalia, which is against Japanese censor co- censorship mm-hmm. code, which prohibits the exposure of genitals and sexual content. This makes mm-hmm. sense because I've seen a couple films where in the most recent Dead or Alive where there's a giant dick cut off as a guy and it's all blurred out. And I was like, oh, they can't show genitalia, but they can show all kinds of other things, but they yep. can't show genitalia. So Takashi Miki tried to stay as true to the manga as possible, but really trying to push it to more of the absurdist and the more sophisticated direction because the story itself is about a cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. We, with a young boy, Ichi, becoming uh, a killer to rid the world of all the bullies and then eventually we'll see this young other young boy, uh, this Takashi, who becomes the new Ichi by the end when all the gangs are dead. So it's uh, Ichi the Killer is very reminiscent, as Kelly said, of um, Mikkei's earlier work in V Cinema, where he got started in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but he also was really inspired by a lot of the energetic thrillers of the 1970s that were had a more perverse mix of gorge sensory stimuli and torture fueled by sadomasochism. Mm-hmm. So 
it's essentially like Japanese manga is really popular over in Japan um, and they are tend to be a lot more extreme than Western comics and manga. Sex and violence sells and they're all over the racks everywhere. There's scenes of rapes, beatings, violence. It is very graphic. Takashi Miike grew up in the 60s and 70s when this was like a big time for manga pushing the boundaries and crossing the lines. And this is where we get this film that really pulls us into this really complex world of fetishism, abject violence and comedy. And that's a portion that we're definitely going to focus down on. And it's a portion of Teach of the Killer that I find the most fascinating. Yeah, we can go down the avenue of it's a commentary on violence, like fine. But I love sexuality. I love talking about it. I love exploring it. And there is really interesting aspects in this movie of sexuality, BDSM, fetishism, and stuff like that. And then coming back to talking about our two lead characters, two main characters, the concept of twinning. We came up in this came up in our research. So twinning, the association of similarities between two people or the act of transforming someone into the clone of the other or the act of matching or resembling another person. Also doppelgangers. Kakiara and Ichi are very similar, yet different. Again, making them, like Asami and Aoyama, very interesting, complex characters. And makes them really interesting to talk about, compare and contrast, because there are a lot of similarities. So again, let's set the scene. Kakiara, big into BDSM, masochist, loves to torture people. He's a Yakuza enforcer. His boss, Anjo, has been killed by Ichi at the very beginning of the movie. Ichi, the killer. He's a crybaby man-child with repressed sexuality. He doesn't like killing people, but he's been brainwashed by Gigi to kill bad guys and bullies, in quotations, in quotations. He's impulsive, full of rage, and he has implanted memories because he killed his parents as a kid. So to erase those and for Gigi to just kill people because he wants to destroy the Yakuza, He's replaced his memories of killing his parents with being bullied and the rape of a fellow teenager who he had to watch. He didn't do anything about it, but in this false memory, he was aroused by it. And that brings Mm. up a whole layered amount of very interesting things we'll talk about. But those are two leads. Exactly. Like, Ichi is very mild-mannered. He's actually very self-pity. He doesn't look people in the eyes. Like, he's he's crying all the time. Like, when you see him. But then when he... And even when he does, like, let loose and kill someone, he is crying. But he gets this sexual release from it. And it's like a painful sexual release. And it's so interesting because I remember when Gigi talks about that to Karen. About, like, oh, yeah, I implanted these, like, memories of, like, this rape and stuff like that. But it went the direction I didn't think it was going to go. Like, it went a dangerous direction. Like, I did not expect him to have this inner sexual inhibitions for this, you know, very, you know, ordinary boy. And like you said, Kakihara, like, he's a sadomasochist. Like, he was in a sadomasochistic relationship with his boss, Anjo. And he is so far beyond the conventional sexual satisfaction. So he's like, 
always seeking the ultra sadist for the ultimate sexual high. And this is what I love so much about this film, is this relationship between this obsession that Kakihara ends up getting with Ichi. And, like, Ichi has no awareness Mm -hmm. that Kakihara is like, I am going to, like, you are, like, you're my ultimate, like, happy ending. Mm -hmm. Like, I need to get to (laughs) you. He thinks anyways. Yeah. You think he thinks that, right? And then by the end of the film, like Ichi's like not even ignoring is like ignoring him and that that's like even more destroying to his ego. But like that's so interesting. I love that like relationship, that dynamic that Ichi is completely oblivious to Kakihara's obsession with him, and that's just because Kakihara is just so obsessed with maintaining that ultimate sexual mm-hmm. high. Kakihara, I love so much. He's yeah. very enjoyable to watch. He is a snack also. Um, but he's a complex and very interesting different protagonist, question mark. Um, he cuts off his own tongue for penance. He unflinchingly, oh. easily, willingly does that. He easily mutilates himself. See his face? I'm pretty, I like to think that he scarred his face on purpose. He has a very distinct look about him. He's pierced. He is scarred. Again, his tongue's also pierced. When you see it, you realize that once he cuts it off. But he does all this without fear, like he does to the victims that he tortures. He doesn't care. He always has a big smile on his face when he's torturing somebody. That's like his ultimate high. Like you said, like he's into this. Like he loves doing this. And Ichi receives gratification and pleasure from inflicting pain on others. Yes, the bad guys, he he gets rage filled. He's like, oh, they're bad guys and they're bullies because Gigi keeps saying like they're bullies. These guys are like the mm-hmm. biggest bullies. Don't they almost look like the bullies in your that that from your high school? Like, doesn't this look like this kid and this kid? And he just like easily gets enraged. But he also really gets aroused when it's done to women. And this I could see as a very challenging aspect of this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. The beaten sex worker says to him, like he goes to a a club where there are sex workers. Um, maybe it's a brothel or maybe something like that, or just like a club where that happens. But she has been beaten, which he had already watched and was aroused by. And so he says, so this beaten sex worker says to Ichi that he's the only one that likes to see her all black and blue. He's aroused. He wants to hear all the details about it. Like, are you in pain? Did it hurt to get beaten? He doesn't mind talking about death and murder. He's into it. But then he pushes his face down into his crotch. Like, he's so aroused, inappropriately aroused by all of this. And I, this scene, I don't like. And this is a bit mm-hmm, later mm-hmm. on. So this is when Karen pretends she's the woman from the made-up yes, rape. Yeah. I don't like the scene. It doesn't go as planned. It's really upsetting. But it does give you a little bit more insight into Ichi as this person. Um, so she keeps saying to him, she's like, oh, well, since then, I want to be abused. I want to be humiliated. I met up with somebody who said he was a sadist, but he was super lame. Nobody can, like, touch me in the way that I want to be touched. Nobody is satisfying, right? He gets really excited. He gets an erection. You know, and she says to him, like, hey, I wondered if you wanted to rape me, too. Like, is this what you've thought about all this time? He thinks that women say they don't want something, but they actually do. And you see that in that scene. He's like, oh, you said you didn't want it, but you really wanted it. Oh, I understand now. I understand women now. This is what this is all about. You say you don't want it. He's so perverse. Like, he's so twisted. Everything has become so twisted in his mind that he can't, or at least he doesn't, 
have a quote normal sense of sexuality it's been so messed up for him so messed up for him because he's so like so sensitive and so easily manipulated he was you know like every like you said everything is messed up for him that he conflates affection with violence when he sees someone being affectionate to someone he assumes that they know they should be getting the shit beat out of them or something like that like that's another it's like another asami like you express love through violence through torture through you know and that's how you get your release or your connection where at least with like a character like kakihara he's an ultra masochist he revels in pain Mm -hmm. and feeling Mm -hmm. and feels despair in the absence of it like it you know i remember when i watched when karen first was interested in kakihara and they're like ooh, like those two are gonna like hook up like i was a Afraid he was gonna like do some kind of torture or something like that to mm-hmm. her but then when it gets turned around and it's he wants her to beat the shit out of yeah. him and when she can't satisfy that in him he's like this this is i crave pain yeah. this is what i you know this is what i need and this is always interesting like you said how there are these two men these two doppelgangers who have been groomed to be essentially attack dogs ichi has been groomed by Gigi, and anjo has groomed kakihara but they both accept it in such very different ways and I feel like Kakihara except like while he's supposed to be like the bad guy in all this like the bad Yakuza guy he seems to have a more like acceptable fetish that we're like okay that's BDSM that's we can get that like whereas like each of the killers like straight up serial killer this is not good at all like he his I thing with sex and violence and pain is not right like that's like the wrong thing we don't want that yeah Ichi is a product of manipulation. Kakiar has agency, yeah. right? He has his, his wits about him, his mental fortitude. He's in control of his own actions. He thrives in this enforcer environment, this hyper-violent place. Ichi doesn't. He's a reluctant enforcer, but he's brutal enough to really intrigue Kakiara. Ichi is the erratic, impulsive, emotional killer. Kakiara is the calm, cool, collected, precise killer and that's what's really interesting too and Kakiara can even recognize aspects just by looking at photos and seeing what Ichi has done the aftermath right of what Ichi has done he's like Ichi is all sadism no masochism and he can recognize that right Yes, like no, like he may even makes comments about how Ichi kills with without emotion, and he's almost disgusted yeah. by it. That, that there's no emotion, no calculation, no compassion. That it's literally just violence for violence' yeah. sake. And Kakihara is not for that. But at the same time, too, he is fascinated by this individual who has no control. Mm-hmm. Right. So interesting how he wants to fight. Yep. You know Ichi, and Ichi just completely ignores him because he's like lost within himself. To yeah. that to that point of like he realizes that, uh, he must at some point realize he's just a terrible person and this is just terrible what yeah. he's doing is wrong, yeah. 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 but. Yeah. It ends up being a huge disappointment for Kakihara, who is put in his mind, who's like fascinated by this killer who kills with no emotion, but yet has no control and is so ultra violent that he's like, will this be my ultimate high? Mm-hmm. So you said something that's really interesting that I want to touch on is that you said that you feel like Kakihara's sexuality seems to be the more acceptable form of expression. So let's talk about that, like sexuality and social okay. norms. Both of these lead characters reject sexual social norms. Some go to problematic places, but looking at the foundation of this, they both reject it. So either consciously 
reject it, that's Kakiara, or subconsciously, and that's Ichi because he's a victim of manipulation and control, right? But they both express abject sexuality, filled with bodily fluids, gore, murder, right? You know, talking about bodily fluids, semen, you know, (laughs) we're into blood, we're into that, right? Kakiara plays within the realm of BDSM. There's chains, he's pierced up, there's scarification, beatings. Yes, Karen attempts to satisfy him with beatings, but to no avail. Anjo is the one that really was like really knew how to beat him up. Like he really know knew how to press his button. So yes, Kakiara's sexuality, I think is deemed abnormal and deviant, but still acceptable as a form of expression. Again, after mm. he, Ichi says to a woman after she's already beaten, abused and raped and he kills her rapist, rapist, sorry, sailor. He says that now he's the one that can hurt her. He's going to be the one yes. to abuse her. Again, that conflating of like violence with affection and this is how you do it right it's so twisted but that's okay for him Ichi thinks it's normal but it's absolutely perverse like killing that pimp was like the ultimate love letter to sailor or a sign of affection she's like um that was nice but he's like oh now I can abuse you she's like no 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 that's I don't want that but we already now know like women say no but they actually mean yes again he has twisted that up in his mind so it's wild it's wild these two like you said these doppelgangers but like they're so the same in a lot of ways but also very different and I also want to talk about their uniform their clothing because they both have very distinct outfits uniform of their non-conformity Kakiara's flamboyant loud clothing jackets sparkling the last outfit that he wears is like pastels and a sparkly long pink mauve jacket right each of the Ichi has superhero gear He has a big eye on his back. He's like this false superhero. But I feel like both of them, because you look, both of them are dressed very differently than everybody else. There is like one kind of glittery outfit that the cop that's in the Yakuza right now wears. And I was like, that's that's at the end. I forget his name, sorry. But the outfits, right? This shows their inability to fit in even within the society of like violence and assault, right? Kakiara is in the Yakuza world. Ichi is the instrument to destroy it. But I love that. This Mm -hmm. abject sexuality that they both have, but they also kind of revel in. Kakiara, for sure, that is this place where he exists and thrives. But Ichi, he does not. Because you're right. Like you said, he cries. He's emotional. He actually doesn't want to be killing people. But it's all messed up in his head. Completely messed up. But then it's also a commentary about how men tend to sometimes look towards sex, right? That when women say no, they really mean yes. Or by, you know, hitting her, it's okay. You know, or like not understanding the complexities to opening up your relationship to have more um, sado, like, to more of BDSM style where there are a lot of rules and regulation. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of boundaries. There's a lot of things you need to consider. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really interesting how when you're pointing out the clothing too and the abject sexuality, like to me, Ichi represents the more like heteronormative, really damaging, really disgusting sexuality that women are just objects to be used and abused and to get your pleasure and that's it because that's all he sees and that's all he does. Whereas Kakihara... There's a sense of homoeroticism Mm -hmm. to him. He was in a very intimate relationship with his boss, Anjo. Like, you can tell that he's deeply, in fact, impacted by the loss of his of his boss, yeah. that that relationship. And like you said, the clothing, the style, like, he puts himself out there as he will go 
He, he'll go both ways. Karen, mm-hmm. Angel, mm-hmm. like whoever will bring him pleasure. That's what he's looking for. He's not defined by any kind of sexual norms mm-hmm. b- based outside of that. So I really like that interesting aspect that this film goes into. Like, yeah, it touches upon so much about violence and stuff like that, but it really has this underlying current talking about fetishism, fetishism and sexuality and, you know, masculinity and sexuality in Japan in itself. Because like you said, like this manga itself has a lot of graphic scenes of rape and violence in them and these are on the stands in Japan that people can look and read at and that 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 is a problem like we said gone back to audition this is a problem it's not a safe place for women in Japan with these men but it's also not a safe place for gay men in Japan like it's like there's this complexity to it mm-hmm. um, that we're seeing in this film when you get past all the ultra violence and the gore you're seeing these really interesting characters who are really struggling with changes in their lives I have to say this so Ichi he slices and dices right he reacts and works quickly and impulsively and is done. Ichi's like the pump and dump. Um, Kakiara is like your slow, sensual, erotic lover. <laughs> Ichi is chaos. Kakiara is order. <laughs> it, also yes, in the bedroom, right? Just like you said, like BDSM, there it seems like it's chaotic, but it actually is the exact opposite. So let's wrap things up and move into Spencer's final thoughts. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Going into this month, watching more of Takashi Miike's films have changed my opinion about this director 100%. They are not this director that just does all these bad taste films that are ultra-violent, ultra-gory. There is actually a lot of diversity in Mikkei's filmography, and I feel like because people just look at films like Ichi the Killer or Gozo uh, Gozo or Visitor Q, and they're just like, oh my god, those films are so fucked up, you know, they're part of that Asian extreme, ends up, we end up mislabeling and and misclassifying a lot of Takashi Miike's filmography and not seeing that these films are actually very complex. They're very diverse. There are a lot of these films, you know, both Audition and, and, and Ichi the Killer, but also in a lot of other of Takashi Miike's films is there really are no heroes. Everyone is a victim. Everyone is a villain. Everyone's a perpetrator. Everyone's like, they're doing the best they can in the lives that they're given in the time that they're living in, right? We see in Ichi the Killer that Mike's trying to strike a balance between violence that excites a viewer and then violence that is disturbs a viewer. I think he does a good job, you know, because you're both disgusted as well as, you know, like, wow, that's such a cool scene with that Yakuza boss nailing a nail in someone's foot to assert his power. But then when you're seeing someone being tortured later on, you're like, oh, wow, this is very uncomfortable. I don't like that. Each of the Killer is a film that really makes the audience think. And this is what I really enjoy about the Kashi Meike's film is that they make me think. I walk away thinking about the films 
hours later, I want to go back again later and watch them just to understand more what's going on and what is happening. I don't feel like, I feel like with Takashi Miki films, you can't take their films just at face value. You need to give them more time. You need to sit with them and you need to understand a lot of the dialogue, but also to understand the context of these films and where they're coming from. We are Western audiences. We see things very differently than audiences in Japan see them. There's reason why certain things in in these films are being more emphasized than we would understand over here in in the West that they would understand over in Japan. And I think we need to understand that. And understanding some context and why when these films came out really plays a whole picture and gives you a whole idea of what's happening in these films to talk about these various anxieties that come out in both Ichi the Killer and Audition. So if you have an opportunity Seek out Takashi Miki films. Watch a bunch of them. Understand that these films are crazy, they're wild, but they're also really endearing. They're also a lot of fun. They're also absurd, and you never know when they're going to end. Literally. You never know how it's going to end. And that's what makes them great. Takashi Miki is an extraordinary filmmaker. It was his birthday this month, too, which is exciting. With an incredibly diverse and fascinating filmography, I'm always excited when I throw one of his movies on because they're not at all predictable. I truly never know what's going to happen in them. I was shocked, disturbed, amused, and thrilled spending the month with this wondrous man. Audition and Ichi the Killer often helmed as Mike's best movies. They come up time and time again as people's favorites. I think for good reason. They're great movies. They are intricately created and take multiple watches to finally get a grasp of what's going on. Or maybe you still don't. That's amazing. Remove the horror, guts, and violence, and these films are filled with humanity. It's just showing the messiness of living on this godforsaken planet. The final battle between Ichi and Kakiara is so disappointing that Kakiara creates a delusion that is more fulfilling for him. Aoyama is disappointing to Asami because he turns out just to be as manipulative as other men that she has experienced in her life, leading to iconic and brutal endings. In these two Takashi Miike films, there are no clear-cut winners or losers. There is ambiguity, just as there is in life. Nothing is black or white. Everything is fleeting. So in life, and like with all Takashi Miike films, you just need to sit back and enjoy the ride. So that ends our episode on the films of Takashi Miike and a listener's request, Audition and Ichi the Killer. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, and to all of you listeners. We want you to follow us on our website, www.spinstersofhorror.com, on social media like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Spinsters of Horror. We have a Facebook group, so come hang out with us. It's the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We also have a letterbox account called Horror Spinsters, and you can also find a bunch of YouTube videos at the Spinsters of Horror, where we have a bunch of live presentations that we've done. As well, please rate, review, and subscribe to I Spit On Your Podcast on any podcasting app that you use. And we also have merch, so please visit TeePublic to purchase one of our t-shirts or a mug or a cell phone case, whatever floats your fancy. Next month, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite subgenres of horror, which is found footage. Particularly, we're going to be looking at films that have the audience always asking, is it real? And the dangers of the internet and stranger danger. The films that will be up for discussion are Megan is Missing from 2011 and The Den from 2013. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female. Female.